Hello, and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries, where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Kate Wells. I'm the curator of Rhode Island Collections in the Special Collections Department at Providence Public Library. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, and um, mostly I work on all things related to Rhode Island history um, in our library. So whether that's accessions, reference, outreach, all sorts of stuff. And my name is Angela DeVeglia. I'm the research and outreach librarian for special collections at Providence Public Library. Um, I work on rare books cataloging. I work with um, artists. I run our creative fellowship. And I also am one of three people in the special collections department. And my pronouns are she and her. All right. Thank you both for joining me this afternoon. Uh, A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about PPL's LBGTQIA plus archive, which is the first archive of its kind in Rhode Island to preserve queer history. But before we get into that, let's start as we always do with what have you guys been reading? Um, Well, I'm coming off of like a year during initially at home during COVID where I didn't read anything. And then now I am reading a whole bunch of chiclet that um, was never really a genre that I was into, but it's sort of like easy. Um, It feels fun. And I, it doesn't, I can't do anything literary for some reason. My brain just can't do it. So um, I have been reading the Knitting in the City series by Penny Reed which is um, a series, I guess they're sort of like, they probably fall under romance, but they're basically the key part of the series is it's a whole bunch of women who are in a knitting group together. And then each book is about one of their stories. So um, it's very sort of light hearted. So I've been kind of working on that. Fantastic. All right. I am someone who's always reading multiple books at once. And so I can just tell you about all of them. Um, The book that I been reading most recently that I'm really enjoying is a book called What the Robin Knows by John Young, um, which is a nonfiction book. And it is about bird language and um, wildlife language in general. And it's really great. I think in a lot of ways, it's sort of a book about listening, um, which is, I really appreciate a book that teaches me to pay attention to the world in a different way. So the book is really good for that. Um, The book that's been living on my dining room table that I read when I'm eating um, is a compilation I got from our library um, that is a bunch of books by Richard Brodigan. Fun, great for reading while you're eating some cereal. Um, And then we also have been talking in our department about November for National Novel Writing Month. We have been um, toying with the idea of all of us writing themed romance novels um, because I think it would be really (laughs) funny. And I understand that romance novels follow a recipe, if you will, and I don't read romance novels as a habit. And so I've been um, reading one for research that is by Alison Clayton it has a very embarrassing name. It's called Cream of the Crop. Um, and I will say it is hilarious. She's really funny. Um, it's part of a series called the Hudson Valley series, and it is a great romance novel and very funny. I really appreciate that Angela is reading this for research purposes. <laughs> I'm not enjoying it, okay? <laughs> What made your whole department be like romance novels? That's what we should write for NaNoWriMo. We 
have all of us have um, sort of been struggling with our attention spans during COVID and talking about the different kinds of light fiction that we have been appreciating or the books with um, quick moving plots that have been really fun for us. And a lot of my friends are reading nothing but romance novels right now. And I just don't like them. But we all had really funny ideas about um, like themed romance novels. We thought the other people should write. And so I think part of it also is that um, as you look even at like the ebook picks, um, like the options of subgenres once you get into romance are astounding and somewhat hilarious. And so um, they get so specific in terms of these like sub 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 genres um, that I think we got really intrigued by all of the ways in which like whatever your totally idiosyncratic interest is, there is a romance novel for you. Yes. Um, and so we started thinking about it that way. And then also um, there's so much self-published romance out there that is truly mm -hmm. terrible in terms of quality of writing. <laughs> we thought... <laughs> there is no way that we could do this worse than some yeah. of what's out there. So, I mean, there's some great writers out there too, really, really yes. good. But um, some of the stuff that is out there available for free download on Amazon, we were like, there's no way that we could be any worse than some of the other stuff that's out there. This also came up after, um, I will unabashedly say that I love uh, murder mysteries that are like baking themed. <laughs> Um, which is a much bigger genre than you think it is, which I, and I only know about it because I used to work in cataloging in a public library. So I would see every book that came into the library and we had a real demand for, um, you know, cake themed murder mysteries. Cataloged a lot of them. I started reading them and some of them are great. And some of them are just utterly poorly written. They sound like they're written by a bot. Um, and so we were like, well, we can write better than this. <laughs> We had a bot read a thousand bakery-themed novels, and this is the novel it created. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. I, I think that I read one of those. <laughs> um, so I just finished a graphic novel anthology, I guess you would call it. It's a, a collection of a bunch of smaller comics called Be Gay, Do Comics. And it was a lot of fun. Well, I mean, some of them were fun. Some of them were very serious and people talking about, you know, the hate crimes that they or people like them experience or, you know, the the mistreatment or neglect at the hands of the government, um, AIDS epidemic and things like that. So a lot of it was really serious, but I mean, a lot of it was fun too. There was a whole comic about being a conservative gay person in America that it was like, we've evolved so far that you can be gay and Republican. Um, and yeah. And um, that was very kind of like tongue in cheek. And uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. There, there were comics that I enjoyed and I enjoyed the art, art sound more than other comics. So like, obviously I had my favorites, but I, it was the most diverse collection of comics. I feel like I've seen in a long time. Maybe I don't read a lot of collections, but just like, the authors that they got and and the identities that they touched upon in there. Like there was a comic about someone who was intersex and didn't find out until they were an adult because their family doctor told them to tell them that they had cancer when they were a baby. Um, and that's why they have those scars and, and whatever. So it was like a lot of, there were, there were parts of it that were 
there were lots of it that were windows for me. There were small parts that were mirrors for me. And I was like, I feel seen. Um, And yeah, it was a lot of fun. That sounds amazing. I just made a note to check it out. (laughs) And yeah, so our audience won't be able to see, but I do actually have it here. So it's also like fun, bright colors. The cover is filled with like a ton of fun, um, little like panels of a bunch of different, presumably queer artists doing their comics and like looking at each other at the other panels and it's bright colored. And um, so the cover is also very fun. Cool. Sounds fun. <laughs> um, so besides reading, have you guys been doing anything else to, uh, to fill your time? Um, well, I would say during the time of COVID when I wasn't reading and I watched literally probably all of Netflix and then I was like, I burned out on TV. So I haven't been watching very much, but I have been doing a lot of podcast listening. So the three that I sort of would say are on rotation right now, one is a serial and it's called Firebug, which is a true crime um, podcast based around a serial arsonist in California, which is quite good. Um, and then the two that are sort of ongoing that I'm really enjoying, one is Smartless, which is hosted by, um, the, the, it's a trio of hosts. It's Sean Hayes, Jason Bateman, and Will Arnett, who in real life are very good friends. And it's like constant ribbing and teasing of each other. And the whole gimmick is like one of them picks a guest and the other two don't know who it's going to be. So they come in. It's like one person is prepared, but the other two are surprised. And so it's sort of very informal and quite funny. And then the third podcast that I'm really liking is called Maintenance Phase, which is um, talks about the ways in which American culture thinks about health, weight, um, and body in general. And so um, that one is really, really good and very thought-provoking. Those are the ones that I'm sort of into at the moment. Yeah, it was, what was the the middle one was Smartless? Uh, smart, smartless, yeah. Yeah, I, that sounds like fun. I'll have to check that out. I yeah, love the yeah. idea of like two, <laughs> one of them knows who the guest is going to be and the other two don't. I think that's yeah. a fantastic gimmick and I wish I'd come up with it. <laughs> it's a genuinely laugh out loud moment like podcast where I'll be listening on the bus and we'll have to like, I'm glad I'm wearing a mask because I know I'm like snickering behind it and otherwise would probably look a little weird, but yeah, it's really funny. Uh, but what about you, Angela? Well, Kate just reminded me, speaking of snickering behind a mask about how, um, before COVID my habit was to go to the gym after work every day and listen to the ologies podcast with Allie Ward, which is very funny. And there was a day that I was listening to an episode about hagfishology and it was so funny that I was guffawing while on some like cardio machine at the gym and everyone was turning around and looking at me and I was like, it's science. Don't, don't mind me. I'm just laughing at science. Um, that's a great podcast. I haven't listened to it in a while, but it's just Allie Ward interviewing people who are ologists of some sort. Lots of fun. Um, I don't actually, I like weirdly live my life in silence when I get home. Um, But when I do listen to podcasts, which is not super frequent, um, my favorite one right now is called Finding Our Way. 
It's hosted by Prentice Hemphill, who is an activist and somatic therapist and all around fascinating, really, really, really fascinating person. Um, And I just looked up the tagline because I was like, how will I describe this podcast? Um, And the tagline says, finding our way is conversation between Prentice and activists, artists and leaders to discuss how to realize the world we want through our own healing and transformation. Um, it's really engaging. And because she's talking to a different person every week, I feel like the topics vary really wildly, but they're all people she obviously just has like really great affection for. Um, yeah. Awesome podcast. Highly recommended. Fantastic. It just, um, I've plugged it on the show before, but talking about someone who has is engaging and someone who has different guests every week made me think of just between us, which is a podcast with uh, Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin host, who if you were watching BuzzFeed back in the day, they were both hosts on that and then kind of branched off like many BuzzFeed feed people did and, and did their own thing. And uh, just between us had like a you know, skit element and their podcast, but their podcast is, I they have experts on every week to talk about a broad spectrum of things. And I always feel like I'm learning but then they also play like games with them they they joke that like they play this game show with them at the end called hypotheticals um so it's like this expert was just talking about redlining and and you know like super stuff and then um and then they ask like then one of the hosts is like would you stay with this cheater and then like gives a whole crazy hypothetical situation where your partner cheats on you in this very particular way and would you stay with them and blah 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 so it's 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 a fun show I think it's a really great mix of like learning things and having engaging experts that are just so smart and can tell you so much about a certain aspect of life but then also just like zany antics (laughs) that sounds good I had to make my little notes about everything y'all are recommending. <laughs> All right. And everything we talk about today will be in the show notes. So everyone listening, um, can, if you're first time listener, you don't have to worry about remembering anything because it's all down in the show notes. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Udemy is an online learning platform for adults who want to improve work-related skills or further develop a personal interest. Users can search through more than 4,000 continuously updated on-demand video courses across 75 categories, including business, technology, design, and more. All courses are taught by world-class instructors and offer a tailor-made learning experience for those who want to learn new technologies and skills to stay competitive in the changing workforce. All you need to get started is your library card and a Google or Microsoft account. You can find more information about how to sign up for Udemy at cranstonlibrary.org by clicking the link that says online resources you can use now. The library is launching a new collection, School Tools. Check out tools, toys, games, and interesting objects for learning and play from Central Library, including a microscope, toy cast register, robots, and more. The tools are meant to support parents who are teaching at home and encourage kids to pursue their passions. If you have suggestions or feedback for this new collection, email emily at emilybrown at cranstonlibrary.org. 
Um, but yeah, so let without further ado, let's talk about PPLs, LBGTQ. Is it is it the whole acronym? <laughs> LGBTQ plus community archive. Okay. There was a whole conversation about the name, so we can talk about that if you're interested. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know. It's a whole alphabet soup and stuff, and yeah. I, I think we could have a whole conversation about, like, we need a new acronym, but I wanted I wanted to talk about your actual project. So, uh, yeah, if you could tell me a little bit more about this project and what prompted you guys to, to set up an archive like this. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I guess this sort of started, I don't know, maybe four four or five years kind of in the making. Um, But Angela and I, um, in the work that we do doing reference for special collections, we're both talking to researchers, you know, over the past several years who are really interested in queer history of Rhode Island. Um, And so we had been trying to find what in our collections was relevant. Um, And we had small handfuls of things, but when I say very small. Um, so Angela and I, I think had gotten involved. Do you remember what year the walking tour planning started? I don't know off the top of my head. I'm going to say it was 2018, but don't quote me on it. I mean, you're going to quote me on it, but sometime around 2018, we started working on a walking tour. (laughs) Yeah. So we, um, we were asked to participate in putting together a walking tour of downtown Providence, um, related to LGBTQ history. And we worked on that with folks from the Providence Preservation Society, the Rhode Island Historic um, and State uh, Preservation. Get that. Thank you, yeah. Preservation Commission, and HPRC. And um, that's not right. I can't remember their acronym. Needless to say, you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> the, um, and uh, independent researcher. Um, Kate Montero, who's been documenting queer history in the state for decades. And who else was in that mix now? I'm trying to think. Um, but we we started doing that initially for a state preservation and heritage commission conference that was coming up. And um, it was, as far as we know, the first organized walking tour. And we sort of I think all as a group felt like this should be the start of a conversation. It is by no means was never meant to be sort of a comprehensive history. Um, And so we did that walking tour. It was at this conference. It was really well received. um, And we had lots of audience members who were sort of contributing their own stories during the walk. And we have offered it in this permutation of this group of folks who put it together. Um, I think it's now been offered maybe five or six times to different groups of audiences. Um, Angela and I did it as a Jane's Walk a couple of years ago. Um, and then it's been offered, I think, to a couple of like specific groups. Um, so I'm pretty sure some members of the people who put it together did it for, for example, um, Youth Pride and members of SAGE, um, which is a sort of elder advocacy group for gay and lesbian. Um, and so it's been offered a number of times. There's been a huge amount of interest. Um, and every time we think we should be recording this because people in the audience are telling us stories as we walk. And I don't know, at some point it kind of became clear that there was no, as Angela and I were trying to put together this like resource guide of where we could send researchers. It was like, we were saying, what's at Brown? What's at URI? Who else has collections? Um, and it kind of became clear that nobody was collecting intentionally. And so we had conversations on our end. We had a board member and our library director, Jack Martin, who um, were just super excited about the idea that PPL could host this. So we started working on that in 
2018, I guess, in terms of what that would look like. Um, we put together an advisory board of community members. So um, basically with the idea that this should be a collection that is um, really driven by the community itself and not by us as curators. And so we were sort of gung-ho and ready to go and then COVID hit. So we put on pause. Um, but I think actually the pause was really helpful. It helped us as, a, as an advisory board um, to really think through what our approach was going to be, who should be involved in decision-making, what, what would be appropriate for us to collect, what would be appropriate to stay in the community itself, but maybe how we can support making that accessible, even if it's not at a library. Um, so that actually, in some ways, I think the pause was good. It helped us be a lot more thoughtful. Um, but then we officially launched this past June with actual collections in hand, which was super exciting. Angela, I've been talking. What would you add? Yeah. Well, I just um, opened the filing cabinet behind me so that I could verify that that first walking tour we did was in April 2018. Um, it was part of a joint conference. Um, there was a there's an annual State Historic Preservation Commission conference that happens in Providence, and it always has a full day of walking tours and bus tours. And so we offered this as one of those tours that year. Um, but then it sort of took on a life of its own. So you said that you just launched this summer. So so like, what does that mean for the archive? Like what stage are you guys at now that you've announced it and the world mm -hmm. knows that it exists? Uh, we're in the post-launch stage. Um, <laughs> no, I'd say that, um, you know, by the time that we launched, we wanted to make sure that we had sort of a core collection in hand so that when people came in and said, where is it? I want to see it. It wasn't like two folders because, um, well, that's a good start. It like feels a little embarrassing. Um, but we had a few pretty sizable collections in hand at that point, um, including a collection from AIDS Project Rhode Island, um, a bunch of really amazing oral histories created by young people who were interviewing elders in the LGBTQ community. Um, so a lot of different kinds of multimedia, we were able to have an event. And um, and I'd say that the, the point that we're at now is that we definitely have a lot of really interesting stuff for people to come in and look at. So now if Kate or I had a researcher come in and say, oh, I'm interested in you know transgender history in Rhode Island, what do you have? The answer used to be, oh, like, unfortunately, nothing, and nobody has anything. And now the answer is like, a little bit. Here's what we have. Take a look. Um, and if you know anyone else who might have cool stuff, have them give us a call. Uh, we're definitely in the give us a call phase um, where we're really excited to be adding more materials. And I think the really fun thing about this time in building a collection is that every new group of materials you have sort of creates the context of the collection as a whole. And so if someone says, you know, oh, I have stuff, my friend has stuff, you know, a close friend of mine passed away, I should talk to their spouse who has a bunch of materials, old posters, um, we can sort of show them the context of what those materials will be living alongside. Um, and we're at the point where we have enough materials to sort of have that context and help build up the collection. And then the collection sort of builds itself based on what's there because then people say, oh, you're interested in this? Let me call my friend. Um, so I'd say that's that's very much the point where we're at. We're delighted to host researchers, but we're also very strongly in um, a building phase. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the things we've been talking about um, sort of 
really from the get-go is um, one of the sort of largest groups of materials, I think, um, related to Rhode Island LGBTQ people is at the Hay Library at Brown, but it's not their specific collecting focus. And so we've worked a lot with um, the curators, Heather Cole and uh, Mary Murphy, who both work with materials related to gender and sexuality and popular culture. Um, and, And the the collections over at the Hay. So we've spent a lot of time actually, I think from a curatorial endpoint, talking about what would be, what makes sense for donors to send to PPL, what makes sense for donors to send to the Hay. Um, and what's been really nice is being able to have super collaborative and cooperative conversations. So for example, um, you know, Heather Cole had, had made a, had started a conversation with Matt Garza, who um, was, is with House of Glitter and had just done that performance, getting ready to do the performances at the Isaac Hopkins house this year and said, Hey, I'm about to jump on a zoom. Do you want to get in on this conversation? Um, so it's, instead of feeling like we are sort of trying to like, um, figure, you know, we're figuring it out on the fly, but with collaborators at other institutions. So that feels less territorial. I mean, our goal is that the material is preserved, whether that's here at PPL or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been really nice is sort of, we have created a research guide and, and that is continuing to build about if there are local history collections elsewhere across the state, like even if you have one item adding it to our research guide to let people let people know what's out there. Um, so that's been going on. And then these kind of conversations about what, how would we narrow our focus? And I think what we've really focused on in general in Rhode Island collections and certainly in this collection is social cultural history of Rhode Island. I think in this case, we would include political history, which we maybe don't necessarily always focus on broadly in Rhode Island collections, but um, that sort of idea of, you know, the kind of question of what makes sense for us um, to collect. So if it was, for example, the business records of a, of a business owner who happens to identify as a gay man, but his business has nothing to do with being gay, like that may not be the appropriate place for PPL. But if it's the, um, you know, personal records of somebody who was involved in marriage equality, Rhode Island, and, you know, gave testimonial at the state house and was really involved in protests, that is something we'd be really interested in. Um, so things that reflect sort of more the community or personal life experience. Um, and some of the, as Angela was saying, exactly spot on some, as we get collections in, we can give examples to people of here's the kind of thing that we're looking for. I think one of the challenges right now is, um, you know, your sort of what we consider contemporary history, which is like, you know, the past 70 years really. And, People have things, but they don't necessarily think of their lives as being historical. So a lot of what we're doing now is outreach to sort of say like that one flyer you have in a desk drawer that you think like who would be interested in this might be the only physical documentation that that event happened. And so we would be interested in that. Um, And it's just that idea that people's lived experience, especially for this particular community, is actually quite historic and when you think about the changes of what has happened in the past 70 years of American culture um, so yeah so we're in that sort of building phase but um, we do have some core key collections that are actually getting pretty substantial use I think we have researchers coming in pretty frequently at this point yeah I'd say almost once a week at this point wow and the collection is not that big yet um, and so it's definitely something that there is a demand for. I mean, the same way that like, if you're starting a small business, you're always advised only start a business if it's something that you know that there's community demand for. Um, We're really starting a collection 
after knowing that there was huge community demand for it. And, you know, obviously having the foot traffic into the library is really wonderful. But I think that for me personally, my big goal is just that when a researcher comes in and says, what do you have related to fill in the blank LGBTQ topic in Rhode Island? The answer is, oh, a bunch of stuff. Um, and, you know, even if we're saying, oh, we have some stuff and we learned that this person that you can call also has a bunch of stuff, just knowing what's out there and having that documented for the people who are looking for it. So um, a lot of queer culture is unfortunately kind of like indie or underground cultures. A lot of the the publications were things that were like small indie presses that were publishing themselves and, and being circulated within the community. So, but not necessarily things that people would think of as belongs in an archive. You know what I mean? Yes. So like how, what was your process like to decide, okay, these are the things that yes, we want, even though they might not traditionally be thought of as things that we would collect and like what you definitely or maybe some of the things that you're like, this is outside of our purview of what we could. Yeah. Um, I will definitely say, as Kate mentioned earlier, overall, our special collections department is very focused on sort of social and cultural history. Um, There are other places in Rhode Island that do other things and do them very, very well. And there's no reason despite what often happens, there's no reason for every organization in a state to be doing the exact same thing. Um, It's better for places to sort of each have their own niche. Um, And so I think that we have sort of been focused more, as Kate was saying, on the experience of what it's like to be an LGBTQ person or to be dealing with LGBTQ plus issues in the state. Um, And I'll also say in terms of getting people to think about the fact that the things that they have, which may not seem academic or scholarly or historic, um, letting them know that those are the things that we want is overall a challenge for any place that's collecting contemporary history. Um, And by contemporary, I mean anything from within the lives of people who are alive right now. Um, And that's definitely something that we talk about with all of our collections, not just this one specifically. Um, Something that is an approach that we are really excited about for this specific collection is something that is informed by the History Project, which is um, based out of Boston, which is a really awesome organization. And the History Project does themed collecting. So every year they'll have, um, I'm looking to see what they were collecting last year, but they'll have a theme like, uh, you know, bars or dancing or families. Um, they're better than that. I'm not thinking about what they <laughs> but they'll have like a collecting theme for the year um, and be saying to people who are LGBTQ plus people or involved with organizations throughout the state saying, hey, this year we're collecting things related to families. What have you got? Um, and so I think that that themed collecting can really help people identify things that they have that are of interest Um, So if we say, for instance, Kate, what was the, we had a theme that we were talking about for this upcoming year, although I don't think we have finalized it yet. Yeah. um, I don't think we have finalized it yet. Um, (laughs) But yeah, sort of the idea um, Angela's talking about is sort of like getting more specificity in what we're looking for, sort of saying like, yes, generally we're interested in this topic, but sometimes people lose that 
they like when you get too vague, they're like, yes. well, what does that mean? What are, what are you really looking for? Yes. Um, and I think, um, you know, whether that idea is like right now we're looking for documentation of social spaces or we're looking for documentation of like you said, um, families and family, like how families have changed or something like that, um, gives people an idea of like, Oh, I think I have something in my house related to that. And we haven't actually started that kind of outreach yet, but that's something we've been talking about. Yeah. We've definitely found, um, with our artists research fellowship that I run in special collections, that the more specific we are, for what we're looking for each year in terms of um, what kinds of artworks we're looking for and what we're looking for topically, the more and the stronger applications we get. Because people, instead of thinking, oh, it's out there, it's a thing, it's like, oh, this this is for me. Um, Or, oh, this is obviously for my friend or this person I know, I'll send it to them. And so I think that that specificity can really be a strength in terms of helping people understand that there are specific things that they have in their homes or offices that are the kinds of things, or not just the kinds of things, the exact things that we're looking for. Yeah, I will say some of that might be somewhat driven by what researchers are coming in to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, I will say there is a huge interest in drag history. Um, For whatever reason, I don't know if it's um, the related, you know, related to the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race or what, but there is like, we get a lot of people interested in that. Um, and we do have um, partly from AIDS Project Rhode Island archives, as well as the Kim Deacon collection that came in. Um, Kim owned Kings and Queens Bar in Woonsocket from 79 to about 2002 and um, hosted a number of drag events over the years. And AIDS Project Rhode Island also had a number of drag performances, which were fundraisers over the years. So both of those collections actually have pretty good photographic documentation. And in the case of Kim Deacon, some video documentation of drag performances, especially in the 80s and 90s. Um, and we've had, it's really interesting, the, the people who are interested in that, we had a choreographer who was really interested thinking about specifically like doing sort of dance inspired by historical, historical movement. Um, we've had, we did a, a high school tour the other day and mentioned this collection. And one of the students said, followed up with an email and said, you know, I'm, I'm with a group of, stu- you know, other teenagers and we're interested in drag performance and I'd love to come in and take a look at that. Um, that's the kind of thing that when we've posted about it or talked about it, it's really generated a lot of interest. So mm-hmm. it might be something where knowing that there's a lot of interest in that, for example, when we do the next batch of oral histories, maybe we'll target specifically the histories or performers. Um, so things like that also kind of weigh in is like, what are, what are researchers right now looking for? But then we're always thinking like, what are researchers in 50 years going to find valuable as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of what's tricky is looking backwards past 1950, right? Is um, we've been looking in our collections to try to find, I, identify materials we have already that might document people who would sort of fall under that umbrella, but maybe not have used the terminology that we use today. Um, So when you're thinking about historical documentation, that's always tricky, right? Because you might say like, um, you know, there might be, for example, um, Johnson and Wales was started by two women who met in college, lived together for the rest of their lives, started a secretarial school, which ultimately became Johnson and Wales as we know it now. They never described themselves as lesbians. That term would not have been used when they were living. 
but in the way that we think of companions, lifelong companions now, we might say, you know, looking backwards, would we would we think of them under that umbrella? We don't know, but it is also worth making researchers of aware that there were there were these people who maybe didn't have a standard heterosexual relationship, but we don't know, you know, right? So I think some of it is always that question mark of like, how do we uncover these stories that maybe already exist, but because they don't, because they didn't use the language and terminology that we use now, we can't maybe always answer that question, but also bringing them to the surface. Um, so I think that's also one challenge, right? It's like you get past sort of the 1950s, 1960s, and language becomes a little bit more like what we know and use now. But even still, you know, the changes in language in the past decade are pretty considerable. So sort of being aware of that over time, that historical context as well. But I think it's important to at least ask those questions that we could assign a label to them that we use now that that would be anachronistic for the time, because I think it's important to make people at least want to start to look into that research and start to think about historical figures or, or historical periods of time. I know I'm always surprised. And in, in the anthology I just read, they talked about like some historic... This guy who was a Revolutionary War hero, he was from Prussia and he was like super gay and just like and like out like like hanging, having having like naked parties with all of his favorite um, soldiers, subordinates, like all this stuff that like you think of, oh, how could anyone have lived like back that back then? Wouldn't they have been like either socially ostracized or physically harmed in some way but there's there's like all these nuggets where people are just a combination of things allows them to live their lives authentically in a time that we would think is less tolerant. Angela Um, I think this is a primary moment for you to tell a story of public universal friends. Yeah well first (laughs) I was just gonna say that you know even with people like Johnson and Wales where they wouldn't necessarily have used the terminology that we use and we don't actually have any idea what their private lives were like there's still something that's really interesting about historical figures whose way of being in the world or whose way of being in relationship with other people is different than what society expected at the time. And I think that that is still compelling and valuable, regardless of what their private lives were like. You know, were they romantic? We don't know. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they were living in a way that was different than what was expected of women at the time. And that is interesting as part of LGBTQ history, regardless of how they would have described themselves, um, because it's valuable to anyone who's interested in people who are living the lives that work for them that are not the lives that they're told they're supposed to want. Um, and speaking of, let's talk about Public Universal Friend. Um, I think it was Kate who first told me about this historical figure. And I have to say that the Wikipedia article about Public Universal Friend changes all the time because they're very beloved. And a lot of people like to do research about them. But it's a delightful article always. Every time we read it, it's different and it's delightful. Um But this person was born in Cumberland, Rhode Island in the 18th century to a prominent Quaker family. And their story is also a genre of story that I think is really underrepresented now, which is to say the story of someone who has a fever and then like has some kind of vision and then wakes up and is different. 
like it must still happen, but there's no longer this sort of cultural trope of like so-and-so had a fever and then had this special vision. Um, but public universal friend had a fever during uh, some epidemic that was sweeping through Cumberland, Rhode Island. And when they woke up several days later said, oh, I died and I went to heaven and then I was told to come back to earth and now I no longer have a gender and now my name is the public universal friend. And they didn't answer to gendered pronouns and they didn't answer to their um, original birth name ever again. Um, and they essentially started a religious movement that was not wildly dissimilar from Quakerism, but was different enough that they were um, you know, kicked out of the meeting that their family belonged to and amassed a lot of followers. And this person was preaching in a long black robe and a beaver hat. Um, Another detail I really love is that a lot of Public Universal Friends followers were unmarried women who were given positions of power, um, which is something that didn't really happen in most religious institutions in Rhode Island at the time. Um, and this lovely detail is no longer on the Wikipedia page, and I have not verified it in a book, but apparently there was some part where um, Public Universal Friend and a bunch of their followers were moving to upstate New York to create a religious settlement where they could live free of persecution. And there's a scene where public universal friend is like riding through the wilderness on a white horse. That's <laughs> like, I don't know where this detail came from, but I really hope it's true because it's just so vivid and lovely. <laughs> What's so interesting to me about the story of public universal friend though, is so this happens, they have this vision and start this religious um, community in 1776. And so Given what else is going on in the country, you can see why maybe it didn't get the amount of news it would have, except contemporary sort of descriptions of public universal friend are just like, oh, there's this, there's this eccentric person. Yeah. They don't actually make it a big deal about the sort of genderlessness of them um, yes. or also the fact that they've renamed themselves. Like they, you know, the news, the newspaper accounts and other kinds of accounts about them are like, there's this kind of nutty person and their followers and yes. they're just this eccentric, but the eccentricity seems much more based off their religion yes. than anything else, which is sort of really interesting. Cause I think like you were saying, Taylor, like we think of people in the past as being very narrow minded, but in fact, like maybe that actually wasn't as big a scandal at the time as we nowadays think it would, must have been. Um, and so thinking about the person you were talking about, that same idea that like, you know, the way that people expressed um, relationships with one another was so different that without a lot more historical context, it's hard for us to sort of understand that moment. Um, but it's kind of a bunker story. And when we found it, it was one of those cases where it's like, okay, like, like thinking about something that's already in our collection that tells this really interesting story that sort of flies in the face of sort of accepted historical narrative. Mm -hmm. It's also fun to think about um, 18th century Cumberland as like a gender utopia. <laughs> <laughs> just love their response to being gendered incorrectly is just to stop responding. I, yeah. I think that's a great strategy. Anyone out there <laughs> yeah. is got, I mean, I can't say anything as, as a cis person, but yeah, uh, 
if if you just stop responding to the wrong pronouns that your family or whoever won't gender you correctly are using, I feel like eventually they'll get it. Yeah, it's a good, it's a power move. It's a good power move. <laughs> yes, precisely. It is a power move. Um, so is there anything else about the archive you want our listeners to know? Um, well, I would definitely love listeners to know that if they're local, they should come in and look at it. And you don't need to be working on a project to come in and use our special collections. You can just um, make an appointment or come in during our open hours and say, I want to see something or what's cool. Or I brought, you know, my sibling over so that we could look at something fun. What have you got? Um, I would love people to know that we're actively collecting and that thing that you think is not really important. There's like definitely a, an academic researcher or a teenager somewhere who would be unbelievably delighted to look at that thing that's sitting in your closet. Um, and I also want to make sure that any listeners who are not local, who are further afield, know that we also offer um, imaging service and virtual research services. So for instance, if someone wants to look at a bunch of pages of a book and they're far away, I can put that book under an iPad and turn the pages with someone over Zoom. Like they're there are all kinds of ways that people who can't come in physically can still access those materials just by getting in touch with us. We can find something that works for them. Yeah, and I guess I would add, um, you know, we are actively collecting. We are looking for people to donate materials. Um, or if you don't have materials, also um, I, we are looking for people to nominate people who should be interviewed for oral histories. You mm -hmm. can do a nominate, fill out the nomination form on our website. Um, and then also... Um, a lot of the conversations that I have right now, I keep copious notes about, and sometimes it literally is like, well, you know, I know that this bookstore existed at this location during these dates. I don't have anything, but here's who you could reach out to. And mm -hmm. so some of it is like just me making notes about here are um, either community organizations or people or, you know, sort of specifically businesses that were um, catering to the LGBTQ community that um, we just, it gives us a little lead to follow up. And so um, even if it's, I don't have anything, but I know you should, it would be great if you collected X or talked to so-and-so, we are very interested in those conversations as well. Mm -hmm. Also, if any of your listeners have a million dollars and they want to donate this is part of the collection, we'll definitely find a way to use all of it. Yes. Yeah, we're hoping to have a program series in the spring and um, a lot of that's going to be COVID dependent. But um, we are hoping, um, you know, either we'll do a hybrid version, ideally in person. Um, fingers crossed, we're going to run a three-part film series um, probably in April that will be highlighting um, Rhode Island queer filmmakers. So that's the goal. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Mentally mark my calendar for yes. April tentatively. Awesome. So... We wrap up the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish-related question just to chat about it for a little bit. So my question for both of you is, have you ever had a crush on a book character before? And if so, who was it? Yes. I'll let Kate talk first because I'm going to think really hard about that. Um, I would say when I was 10 or 11, so I was obsessed probably around like fifth grade with the Anne of Green Gables series obsessed and I would say I think I had a crush on both Anne and Gilbert Blythe <laughs> <laughs> yeah I that was that was probably like the first 
the first uh, the first two characters that I was like, I'll just keep I can keep going reading about these over and over and over again. And then God forbid that PBS and of Green Gables that came out in the eighties that was like the best thing ever for being ten years old. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like without a doubt the answer to this question is yes, and I just am racking my brain being like, uh, but who was it? <laughs> think of any gosh did you come up with this question because you just have a crush on everyone in a book taylor (laughs) well as a teenager i read a lot of the like standard ya a very popular like ya fantasy or like i i had a twilight phase and i was team edward and when i was like 14 i thought that edward was like the dreamiest and that you know staring at someone when you sleep is not creepy and is really <laughs> romantic but i've i've reevaluated that standpoint uh but even like i read the cassandra clare mortal instrument books and i was like jace is the dreamiest and and clary is the luckiest girl in the world so i feel like if a ya author wrote a dreamy a dreamy male protagonist that the that the character was supposed to fall in love with that i like fell a little bit in love yeah. with them I feel like it's always um, young adult authors who create the most dreamy characters. I don't know if it's because we tend to read those books when we're young and you're like, ooh, this is what dreamy looks like. I'm learning about it from this (laughs) book. But when you asked that question, I immediately was thinking back to like lots of young adult novels that I've read. There's nothing where I was like, well, this great book I read like last year. I will say, add on to that, um, a character who I've never understood as a romantic lead, like the opposite of a crush, is um, reading Jane Eyre. I never understood Mr. Rochester as a romantic lead because he's awful. He's like really, truly awful. And I've never understood like why he was held up as this romantic it's, character. He's hiding his wife in the attic. Yeah. And he's mean to Jane. Like, he's not nice. (laughs) I have the same feeling about um, Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Who's um, just, you know, supposed to be, like, moody and dashing. And I was like, that man is a mean jerk. Talk about setting (laughs) you up for, like, dysfunctional really. Talk about toxic masculinity for both of those guys. No, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Men would rather walk along the moors in the thunder than go to therapy (laughs) or hide their way to the attic than go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's the opposite of a crush, but... Yeah, repulsion. (laughs) 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 Oh, can I choose a comic book character? Does that count as a book? Obviously, Tank Girl is the most crushable comic book character (laughs) of all time. (laughs) That's a good one. Also a fashion icon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both for joining me and for for chatting with me this afternoon. Um, And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us here at Downtime, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And now you can reach out to us via social media with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. Uh, If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show. And thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. 
and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. Um, But before we talk about that, let's talk about how we always start. That's weird. I phrased it different than I usually do.